world's not as simple as it used to be. It's not enough to be a good guy anymore. We have to be the best. The time has come. All will be accounted for. Or we will hunt them. Stand up. It's time to be the heroes we were always meant to be. I love the cheeseburger pizza from Domino's that is only Ooh, uh. there only certain amounts of the year. <laughs> I I know, and here's, and I don't know if this is better or worse, but like my guilty pleasure food recently has been like chain pizza uh, buffalo wings, which I feel is like the lowest. Wait, yeah, what? Like, you know, like, you know how you order like a Domino's or pizza or whatever. They always have like a bunch of sides that nobody gets. I always get like buffalo wings. I, you know, buffalo wings, like, there's only so high that they can go, so, like, fine, that's not a problem. I love wings. I, I will go and get wings after, like, going to, like, a midnight uh, movie or whatever. I love that. That's great. Um, cheese, can we go back to cheeseburger from pizza from Domino's? I, it tastes like a cheeseburger. Then get a cheeseburger. <laughs> no, because it's, cool. it's somehow better. <laughs> Oh. I I love it, and it even has like little pickles. Uh, oh gosh, why did you tell me this? I mean, I don't oh. eat pickles because pickles are gross in general. But correct. But it, yeah, it's. Hey, do you know what else is is better than a cheeseburger? Comics veering veering us on track. <laughs> yeah, it's time. It's the Superhuman Registration Podcast, where we have really strong opinions about fast food and comics. My name is Steven, we've got John and Aldo on the line, and we are here to talk about a couple of books that we read. How are you fellas doing this evening, the evening of the day that we are recording? I am shook now. recovering. Yeah, Aldo is... <laughs> Aldo's not re- well for real, so we should... We should. <laughs> You're both recovering from different things. <laughs> My thing is not real, we should take care of Aldo. <laughs> no, no, it's definitely real, I've had it multiple times, it's delicious. <laughs> oh, oh. Oh, boy. We have a couple of good books to talk about tonight. Well, we have a couple of books to talk about tonight. I'm going to withhold judgment on whether they are good or not until after we've had our discussion. They pay their taxes if they put the shopping cart back in the in the little stall thing. That is the test, yeah. So kind of lawful yeah. good. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not actually entirely up to speed on D&D stuff. Do they not use alignment? Are they phasing that out? I, so... What Wizards of the Coast and official D&D is doing, I don't know. Um, I like 5th edition in whatever version has come out, and then little tweaks to it. It kind of just depends on, you know, who you play with. I, I, I think that's something that might be happening. I think it's useful, but also... And everyone I play with kind of tends to be chaotic good, where it's like, we're going to fight the bad guys whether or not, you know, the town guard cares that we're breaking down walls or not. You know, that kind of thing. So it's kind of, unless you're, like, playing really by the book, everything kind of tends to be chaotic good anyway. If you want to have a character that's like, no, 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 we can't rob those people, even even for the greater good, then, you know, fine, but... That ends up being like a stick in the mud, unless you have a you know talented group that can role play around that, so that your your thief in the party never hangs out with the paladin, or they always have to do things behind his back. That would be funny, and, and I'm sure that that happens a lot. But I've I've always understood it to be a pretty heavy like role play mechanic, 
uh, for like people who really want to play that character. And I think, granted, my knowledge on like second edition isn't as deep, but I think even on second edition, there were very few mechanics that relied on it. I think characters that were more. I guess, based on, like, the law. So, like, you know, kind of like John mentioned, like, rogues and paladins and stuff. I think they had certain mechanics that played into, like, how much you played into your alignment. So, like, and I I might be pulling this out of the air, but I feel like I remember paladins having a thing where, like, if they were playing against their alignment or, like, against their god, so, you know, both, I guess, there were, like, certain limitations to the things they could do, but I'm not sure. That is, that is one thing... I, I've read that too, and I can't remember if that's the official description. Like, hey, just keep in mind, your paladin, you know, they're, they're they're granted power by a god, and if they're like breaking their own rules or their own god's commandments, then yeah, they could lose that. So I think that's a thing. And I know there are other things. Like I think there are like uh, like were creatures, like you know, obviously people that transform into like stuff. Certain were creatures have in like an inherent alignment. So if you are role-playing that or your, you know, your character gets stuck with something that's, you know, turns them into a were-creature, if you want to limit them, they have to, like, play by that alignment. I saw that very recently on TikTok. That sounds correct. What alignment do we think alternate universe cowboy Wolverine is? That's a good question. He is... Because he... I, I have to look at the alignment chart. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I would say he is um, neutral good because... They show up, I mean, not to get ahead of the summary, but when they show up and there are, like, gods about, you know, he's he's willing to kind of go along and put up with their rule for a bit before, you know, th- things escalate. So I would say neutral good. I was going to say lawful neutral, which I guess is kind of adjacent in a weird way to, like, what you were saying. Mostly in the sense that he's killing not because he likes to or anything, but because, like, that's the thing he has to. He He's also trying to keep, you know, trying to keep other people from killing by other people, I just mean the one kid. Hmm. I don't know. That was just kind of... I think what you were saying is makes more sense. I'm going to sew that on a pillow and put it under my head every night. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> let's start with this X-Men story, huh? Yeah. Now that that's gone to John's head, let's do that. Hmm. Yes. Oh. <laughs> now that we've given John his one praise of the episode. <laughs> there, there. You can have a little bit of praise as a treat. That doesn't bode well, because... I, I, on the whole, liked these stories, and I'm about to find out that I'm wrong, so go on. <laughs> okay, so we read Extreme X-Men from 2012 run, so like the second volume of Extreme X-Men, and this is like a pretty different team or composition, I think even a setup to the premise from previous Extreme X-Men. But we read issues one through five of the series, with writing by Greg Pak. Pencils on issues one, two, and three by Steven Segovia. And then in the latter part of three, from four and five, uh, Paco Diaz. We got colors by Jessica Colin, Chris Sotomayor, inks by Dennis uh, Chrysostomo. Actually, the list of inkers is pretty long. It changes kind of issue from issue, which is why we can talk about this later, but I think we we all kind of notice that even if the art style is kind of consistent within the arc, it's still different, and I think it's because of inkers. And letters yeah. by Joe Sabino, and let me make sure that it's Joe Sabino all the way through, and it, it do be. So the premise here is that we have a group of multiverse-hopping X-Men. Our core casts consist of Dazzler, Allison Blair from 
believe it's the 616 universe, and alternate universe versions of the following characters of Emma Frost, Wolverine, and Nightcrawler, with their respective names being Emmeline Frost Summers, General James Howlett, and Kurt Wagner. And we also have a head in a jar, Charles Xavier. And the premise of this team is that they are hopping the multiverse because there are infinite universes, or maybe, and in each of these universes there is a Charles Xavier, <laughs> and for some reason a lot of these Charles Xaviers are now evil. So this group of X-Men has to hop the multiverse to find the top 10 worst Charles Xaviers, you won't believe number 4, and kill them. <laughs> And so the issues that we read are like the first trade, but really we read two stories. The first story mm-hmm. dealing with them going to a world where a few of the X-Men are gods. And so we have, again, a different alternate universe versions, but we have like Sabretooth, Iceman, Namor, Thorstorm, and the Herald. And I'm pretty sure that was Nova, but that also might have been uh, Worthington. I'm not sure. I think it was. I think it was Angel. I think it was. Yeah, the armor under like on his chest looked a little Nova-ish, so that was a little confusing to me. It did. It did. Or it might just be an an amalgamation too, but I I don't know. Anyways, so they go there. They find out that the gods are like crazy and bananas, and they're real tyrannical. And there is a little town that the Charles Xavier and Magneto of that world are kind of saving. It's a little outpost that they have shielded and that they are using to protect the citizens so the x-men team is kind of concerned and confused as to maybe why they should kill him and it is revealed that this charles xavier has been mind controlling the gods of that world and made them all crazy to make himself and mcneil look like the good guys for some kind of like you know the gods were perfect and humans and we people became you know, weak and so on and so forth. So they kill him and they hop to this kind of Wild West uh, multiverse version of their world and the Charles Xavier here has recently kind of discovered his psychic powers. Or not discovered them, but he has recently unlocked like a new level of his power. So now, I guess, apart from reading people's thoughts, he can now like hurt people mentally and kind of take control of them. And that happens right when they arrive. So they kind of go there and I mean, that one's pretty straightforward is they find... that Charles and they kill him. There's a couple things that happen, which is that the their Wolverine or the extreme Wolverine is caught and apparently he receives some sort of damage to his head that allows that Xavier to control him. And so he kind of becomes an antagonist for a brief moment. They meet a young version of Wolverine there and he kind of takes a liking to him and they, they save his dad. So... Wolverine also kind of helps save his dad from a different multiverse, and it makes him feel just a little bit better. And that's kind of where it ends ends at the moment. They kind of go hop to another universe. I don't think we really get a good idea of which universe we're going to at this at the end of this issue, but we can just assume they're going to another wacky universe. <laughs> well, this it ends with uh, Kurt reaching out for his parents, and uh oh, then he's trapped by robots, and then. What's going to happen next? It, that he he actually ends up going back to his own universe where a version of the Sentinels kind of take over. But yeah, yeah, it's yeah, right. He gets splintered off from the group. I forgot to mention that I think Emma Frost stays behind with the gods in the in the first world, so she doesn't travel with them to the next one. And yeah, 
young Nightcrawler kind of splinters off as they're jumping to the next world at the end of, the, of this. So thoughts? Not what I expected. Yeah. That's uh, like, and I'm honestly not a hundred percent sure if or how much I liked it. There's there's stuff about it that I like. I like the high concept. I like. I don't know. I think nowadays we're kind of used to superhero stories doing the alternate universe thing and it's a bit overdone now yeah but when it's in comics and it's kind of off on its own side and it's just like we know that this is non-canonical it doesn't matter let's just have fun they can do some good stuff with it i think that's my problem with like a lot of multiverse stuff especially from marvel and dc is that they're not it's not that it's not a fun multiverse but that it's canonical multiverses so they never just go somewhere fun anymore right like they go somewhere that's been established that either has a history or has a future and so i think they do that to kind of raise the stakes to make it feel like it's important that they're there for whatever reason right and i think that's kind of limiting whereas this this is just having fun right like we don't even get a number for what earth they're going to or what multiverse they're going to right because marvel loves to do that dc loves to do that you know earth 47 earth 2 earth 1999 99 whatever it's because any little any little tidbit could be worth something you know at some point later to a future artist or honestly as an ip for you know movie studios so now it's well we can't just have an evil mustache universe because that evil mustache universe will come back and be the big bad villains in a future event you know a crossover between several titles and it's going to be very important to have the evil mustache universe at some point so we can't just you know do it for goofs we can't have you know a x-men event where they go to an alternate timeline where everyone's a, a marsupial you know because then you know the marsupial universe will will be a big deal later yeah actually you know who is doing that not exactly marsupials but the spider-verse stuff is doing that like i think in the recent like 17th spider-verse event that they're doing right now there are it's a spider-verse of dinosaurs I don't. I'm embarrassed to. St- I didn't know about this, and I'm very embarrassed for myself because it's only happened like the last month. I think. <laughs> like it's a pretty recent thing. That is, man. That is right there on the line between. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of, and that is the coolest thing I've ever heard of. Yeah, gotta read that now. But yeah, I I like the high concept. It it kind of gives me a weird vibe of the one, which. Any Anything that gives me a vibe of the one, I kind of instantly like a little bit at the start. I thought that was such a dumb, great, high concept. I wish more things would do that. But yeah, like the whole idea of them having to go hunt down the Xaviers here is really interesting. I think the other thing I like here quite a bit is the concept of different character, the different versions of the characters we get. I don't think I went over those in detail in the in the synopsis but the versions that we get here is this wolverine is like a sheriff from like a different old west town nightcrawler is like a little kid i think he says he's 14 or 13 he's 14 but yeah yeah and this emma frost wears pants so pretty different versions of the characters and so as as the series progresses at least i remember from when i initially read the run you know, we get a lot more of their backstories and stuff. This was a little controversial when it was coming out because the Wolverine here is revealed to be gay. 
and he was in a relationship with, I believe it was Hercules from his yeah. world, because they hint at it. They imply that in these, yeah, right? Because he sees Hercules in the first issue and is kind of taken aback, and they reference it later, you know, Dazzler asks him, so you did a, you like, you love Hercules in your own universe, and, you know, he he's like, yeah, yeah. It was frowned upon, though, in my in my universe, in my country, still against the law. So they say he's like a Wolverine ver- meets Teddy uh, Teddy Roosevelt, I believe. Uh, but was it, it's like he's he he was the the leader of like his version of Canada, right? Like he was not just a sheriff. Like he has that kind of air where he's cowboy Canadian cowboy Wolverine. But yeah, I think they say that he's like was like a commander or general or something. Like general turned governor, that kind of thing. Yeah, something pretty, I don't know, leadershipy. Not just shippy with Hercules, but leadershipy. Mm-hmm. I I get that Dazzler is our entry point into the crazy things going on, and since Dazzler is from the regular, for lack of a better term, universe, she's our, our narrator, our kind of point of reference, but they just, she was annoying the whole time, and was put in that role. I think like she just kind of maybe it's the the need to like give her pop culture references or trying to use like the the hip slang of today but it all came off as annoying and that's a real shame because she could have been something other than the girl in the story but that's all I was getting from her um I don't know maybe maybe yeah. reading it through again she does you know display wider uses of her powers than just you know doing a light show and is resourceful and you know a good fighter all of that so there are good things but anytime she's you know talking and all of her costuming it's just like well this is just the the pretty girl of the story and that's as deep as we're gonna get with it yeah uh this was one of the things that i think can make these alternate universe stories work is having a solid main character exiles which we read very early on in the podcast and probably ought to go back to at mm-hmm. some point used the character of blink who in the main Marvel Universe had a vanishingly brief role in one X-Men story, but she was a major character in the Age of Apocalypse event and got a big fan following from that. And so the story of Exiles really was Blink's story. There were other characters, but Blink was the constant because it was a changing roster, kind of like we're getting here. This is basically Exiles again, and their central character here isn't strong enough. That's probably my biggest complaint. And it's partially what you were saying, John. Dazzler is not characterized very well beyond just having outfits. Yeah. Yeah, I think part of my problem is that she's not curious about where they are, right? Because if you have a character who's leading you, you want to be familiar with the character, but you also want the character to either be familiar enough to explain things or unfamiliar enough that when stuff gets explained... It's to you and that character, right? But she doesn't really seem to kind of care all that much of where they're at. And she just kind of goes in. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And it is it is frustrating because I like Dazzler conceptually. The problem is I don't think Dazzler has a solid identity in the comics. I've read like the original X-Men. I've read some 90s era X-Men. I've read some... 2010s era A-Force, then there's this book. Every single one of them, Dazzler, has a different look, a different hairstyle, a different genre of music, and nothing that really connects 
all of these different things. I might be mistaken, like somebody who's a, a hardcore Dazzler fan might say, well, actually, this is all kind of the development of the character, and it just shows, and why would you expect one person to stay the same over the course of all those years anyway? And it's like, yeah, I get it. But, you know, you can read Wolverine from the 80s and Wolverine <laughs> to today, and there are changes to the character, but he's... He, there are through lines the entire way through. There's a core characterization, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I think this... The difference here is that Blink was a character who had a solid design, solid background, at least within the world of Age of Apocalypse. And so there was stuff to build on with her, whereas Dazzler here is kind of unmoored. And now they've put her in a story that is all about being unmoored from your own universe, going into these other different timelines, other different, other different very dramatic s settings, and not having that strong personality to anchor it. Yeah. And I think on top of that, it probably doesn't help a whole lot that she was kind of unwillingly brought into this and kind of forced into it. So it kind of feels that she kind of rejects the mission, right? And as even if she is kind of going along with it, she's not necessarily going along with the mission. She's going along with staying alive, which could be interesting, but it, that also doesn't really go anywhere because she meets the other team or she meets the team, right? And immediately it's like, okay, well, now you're going dimension hopping, so have fun. And she's just like, well, okay, I guess I should stay alive and protect this child. But even, even then, that child is pretty uh, self-sufficient. The child is Nightcrawler, in case I wasn't clear. <laughs> is he the best of these characters? At least from what we've seen? Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to like Nightcrawler, first of all. But he's also the kid. He's, you know, kind of a, a tech expert, you know, lending, lending aid that way. Kind of, like, the nicest, the easiest to be around, you know. So, I, yeah. I, I do like that we get a floating head Xavier who acknowledges that Xaviers suck and they need to kill some Xaviers. So that's that's something. But now I'm conscious. I've been saying Xavier, not Xavier. Uh, whatever. You know how I'm. Charles. I have heard it both ways. I don't know if there is a definitive pronunciation for... I think Patrick Stewart says Xavier, so... Yeah, go well, that. they're the X-Men, so I would assume <laughs> it's Xavier. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. My middle name is Xavier, but it's pronounced Javier. Wait, really? Yes. That's fantastic. It was a loophole because my dad didn't want another uh, Javier in the family because there's already like four. And so my mom was like, okay, because she wanted me to be a junior essentially. And he, he wasn't having it. And so she was like, haha, loophole. It's not the same name if it's spelled with an X. <laughs> Technically true. But uh, yeah, there's a few ways to pronounce it. I think in the long run, at least from what I remember, I think... For me, Wolverine was the most interesting and kind of best part of this run. Mostly because as you kind of delve into his past and get to who he is and some of the stuff he had to do. You know, he is a pretty well thought out character. But in these first five issues, we don't get a whole lot of that. We just kind of get standard Wolverine, but with a really yeah. cool mustache. On the scale from Cyclops to Wolverine, he's actually a little further along on the Cyclops side of things than I'm used to yeah. seeing in this hmm. iteration. Mm -hmm. And so I would agree that this, what we've seen of him thus far in these five issues, doesn't make him the most interesting. Not not bad, but I mean, on the Wolverine Cyclops scale, you know, you're either on the right side or on the left side. There are very few moderates in the Wolverine Cyclops debate. I'm going to use that as a scale for a lot of characters now. <laughs> <laughs> Nightcrawler is like out of the equation because everybody likes Nightcrawler. 
that's well both of well some versions of the story wolverine and cyclops or excuse me wolverine and nightcrawler have a thing had a thing like romantically yes it's implied uh-huh. i think i prefer the reading that they're like best friends because their friendship is cool but yeah it's it's not invalid <laughs> i think i like when wolverine is not the main character but is kind of you know the moral center I liked him in like like Dark Phoenix for example. You know, he has some cool action scenes where, you know, I think it's Nightcrawler and Storm look as he just like eliminates a whole bunch of guards and they don't show all the violence but they show the reaction. It's just, "Oh my gosh, you did all of that. Holy cow." You know, he's a member on the team and can be relied on but is not it's not the Wolverine show. I think we we get a lot of Wolverine in this, but it didn't feel like it was all about him. It felt like this this was Wolverine on a mission and, you know, had something to do, but we weren't... The spotlight wasn't on him just yet. Yeah, the, the spotlight wasn't on him and we weren't losing the thread of what they came to do at the expense of, oh, I'm remembering my, my home world, you know, like, whatever. To be fair, I think in these first five issues, specifically in the first three, right, because that's the first, like, core story. Yeah. They're relying on existing knowledge of the characters, right? And just kind of tweaking them ever so slightly. Right, and setting the stage, yeah. Mm -hmm. To get you used to the idea of the dimension hopping. Assuming that you don't read a lot of comics, I think that's actually a pretty good way to do it. So I think think the farther you get along, uh, you probably get some more interesting characterization from from some of the core characters. And, you know, we also get to see other versions of different characters coming in, which is, you know, equally, can be equally interesting. It is wild to me now that i'm thinking about it that i thought the characters in this story thus far were kind of bland because greg pock is actually really good at characterization generally yeah like i'm thinking about i'm thinking about like planet hulk and the mm-hmm. warbound and like i remember those characters i remember korg i remember miak i remember them because of their conflicts yeah. i think their ideals and their conflicts that kind of drove them not that mm, that i'm about to get off on a thor ragnarok tangent but Anyway. Was, wasn't it Pac who also did that Hercules and Cho story? Uh, that was Pac with Fred Van Lente. Yeah, so I mean, even even then, right? Like, the characters, like, whether you liked them or not, they were, you know, the characterizations were solid. Like, you kind of knew who they were from the first part of that story all the way to the end. Yeah. It's a little sad that when I think of Greg Pac, that's like the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> was that <laughs> your first story that you read? I mean, that was the first time I think I read him. I think that was the first time I read that story. That's definitely not the first time I read Greg Pak, but for some reason that is the first thing I think of when I think of Greg Pak. Thirsty Aldo. Thirsty Lees. I was looking at our list because I know we've read him before. I thought we'd read him more, but it looks like it's just the two times. So swing both ends there. Uh, we have him in the top ten and then the, like the bottom half. So probably bottom third if I'm doing the math right, but... I like Greg Pak. I think he is good. What this podcast has taught me is that he is not someone that I always like. Sometimes he writes stuff that's not for Mm -hmm. me, and that is fine. Also, I think I have a problem with the high concept of this story being, let's go kill a bunch of people. Yeah, yeah. Eh. Except eh, it's, it's, it's evil Xavier's, you know, that's too much power. On one hand, I get where you're coming from because you're very much the I don't like my heroes to kill guy. I don't like my heroes to kill. 
On the other hand, it is a little refreshing to just be like, yeah, we're not going to go put them in some weird, uh, you know, interdimensional prison or whatever. We're just going to eliminate the problem. Whatever. We'll call it good. But who's doing it? Like, who's in charge of it? They're being led by another Xavier, yeah. right? Yeah. In late, I mean... I didn't read the Wikipedia article. You did. <clears throat> but that, <laughs> that does come into play where, you know, other evil Xaviers that they think that they've killed take over their Xavier because, of course, they do. And so it gets it gets tricky, you know. And I think they also do the one thing where as they eliminate more Charles or more Xaviers, the remaining Xaviers get stronger. Which I think they impl- or they hint at that, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. It's the, it's the inverse law of ninjutsu. <laughs> there's, a whole, um, there's a whole episode, or episode, like two issues where there's a bad guy who's able to defeat a ton of ninjas because there's a bunch of ninjas and it's like the rule of like, the, I forget if that's what it's called. It's like what you, when you see a bad 80s action movie, the star can defeat an army of ninja by himself. But at some point, Dr. McNinja has to defeat de- defeat this guy and his army of ninjas. Like He's like, hey, bro, and like they become two, two on an army of ninjas, and it works for them. Yeah, it's... I forget what, where the shift is, like where, where it becomes where, of course, an army would defeat one guy. <laughs> but yeah, so, so I think they, they hint at that here, right? Because they kill that first... Charles, and then they go to the Western world, and that Charles kind of unlocks more of his power, if I remember correctly. It's been a while. These books came out in 2013. And I was distracted by his top hat. <laughs> he had a... The, wild, the, the designs were awesome. We got, you know, the Wild West uh, X-Men, as well as kind of an Asgard-esque... I, I did like the god designs. The god designs were actually really cool in mm-hmm. the first arc. And wasn't it kind of like, well, finally, this is what Storm should be doing anyway. Come on. So, that's what I liked. I didn't like that, like, of course, of course they put Dazzler in, like, a Slave Leia getup and Emma Frost. I mean, you never can express much, much from Emma, Thro- Emma Frost, you know, being anything but, like, we're gonna, we're gonna just... Lingerie this week. Yeah, it's just, yeah... I like Emma Frost teaming up with Cyclops to run the X-Men, to run the Xavier School, you know, trying to be a good guy, but just kind of playing a role as a, as a psychic, you know, and not being like, you know, eye candy for preteens. Yuck. Yeah, one of two times that uh, Emma Frost has wore pants. Mm-hmm. This time and when she was a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I yeah, I don't have much else. I think it's interesting that we, we keep talking about other X-Men stories, yeah. right? Well, you got to know six... But before you read your first X-Men story, you have to know six X-Men stories to, like, follow what's going on, right? Yeah, yeah. But I do think that means that maybe there's not as much more to say about this. Uh, the art was good. It wasn't, you know, bad. It wasn't, like, thrilling, but fun designs. Yeah, I thought the art was good. I like... And I think they keep that up through the rest of the run, where every time they switch worlds or they go to a different arc, they switch artists which is kind of a neat thing that you can do in comics. I think because the inkers were varying quite a bit, the quality of inks, not the quality, but the style of inks changes from issue to issue. So even though you have the same penciler for the first three issues, the art changes slightly in a way that's 
kind of noticeable. It's pretty noticeable to me, at least. And I, at first I thought, I was like, are they switching artists to, like, every issue? And it's like, no, it's the inkers that are changing. And I was like, oh. Yeah. But talking about needing, like, six books to know an X-Men book, I felt like I needed six books of prologue before I really oh. understood what was happening in our next book. Annihilation was wild. Let's talk about it. So, Annihilation was a 2006 comics event, came out contemporaneously with Civil War. Actually, Civil War gets a mention in, I think it was issue five or six of Annihilation. Uh, This is not the creative team that I remembered. I actually remember it being a different team. Annihilation was written by Keith Giffen with art by Andrea DeVito, colors by Laura Villari, letters by Corey Pettit, and covers by... Gabriel Delato. I don't normally mention the covers, but Annihilation actually had a ton of tie-in issues, which we did not read in preparation for this big event. And I think that might have hurt some of our comprehension of what's going on. I've read it all before, but it's been literally decades, and I don't know how well I remember it. But anyway, um, the reason I mentioned the covers is because all of the different prelude events the the nova story there's a ronin story there's a silver surfer story and a super scroll and drax there might be some others that i'm forgetting but all of the covers for all of them were done by gabriel delato and so annihilation as a brand wound up with a very distinct look and that might be part of the reason i remember it so strongly i kind of haven't even really gotten to the recap but that's just kind of now. Did they have me. Annihilation trading cards? They did not. Or they probably did, but I didn't have them. These covers are prime like trading card material. Gorgeous covers. <laughs> They're very yeah. good. They look like they look like the Marvel Masterworks series of cards that are like oil paintings yeah. and Yeah, imagine these with like a layer of foil on them. Ooh. So yeah, seriously, like the holographic card that you put oh man. Um anyway. The recap is actually going to be pretty brief here because the story itself is not super complicated. This is a war comic. The war just happens to be between the evil monarch from an alternate dimension, Annihilus, and all other sentient life in the universe. That's the high concept. Drilling down a little bit, Annihilus is leading this invasion force with the intent of overrunning and destroying all life. Because the universe that we all live in is expanding, and it is expanding into the negative zone, which is his domain. So Annihilus wants to wipe out the life that is expanding into his domain. And uh, at some point in the series, we discover that Annihilus's goal is to be the sole remaining living creature. So this isn't this is a war story, but it's not a war story with all of the gray and the complexity that war stories tend to have. This is a war story about bad guy, bad beat up bad guy the quote-unquote good guys the team is made up of just this bizarre mishmash of outer space characters many of whom are are going to be familiar to folks who are fans of the marvel cinematic universe but in name only they are very different from the versions of them that we are now more familiar with if we had to name a main character it would probably be nova the events of the nova series wiped out the nova Corps. So Nova is the last remaining member of the Nova Corps at this point, and he is leading the defense against the Annihilation Wave. The defense is not going well. Nova's primary advisor is a very obscure, almost completely unknown Marvel character named Star-Lord, who in this 
story is sporting a very trendy cyborg eyepiece and not the helmet that we are very familiar with from the Chris Pratt version of the character. Nova is also sharing his bed with Gamora, the most dangerous woman in the galaxy who barely gets into any fights and yes, is wearing a thong for like the entire story. Other allies for Nova include Ronan the Accuser, who is a fugitive from Kree justice. However, he still wears the mantle of authority and many Kree soldiers still follow him, even though the Kree rulers do not. The Super Scroll shows up eventually, very powerful Fantastic Four villain, a member of the Scrolls who has all of the powers of the Fantastic Four, winds up supporting the, the heroes and actually teaming up with Ronan, despite the fact that the Scrolls and Kree are lifelong sworn enemies. Drax the Destroyer shows up, aesthetically looks very similar to the Dave Batista version. However, it, he is very different. He is very cunning. He is very clever. He is very serious. Anyway, all of these folks are teaming up to fight against the Annihilation Wave. Annihilus himself is allied with Thanos, and actually Thanos seems to be serving Annihilus. Thanos has helped to subjugate the Silver Surfer and Galactus, and he is siphoning off the power cosmic from Surfer and Galactus in order to use it to power Annihilus and help him to achieve his goals. Annihilus has some other unwilling allies uh, that are kind of mind-controlled through these bugs that are under their skin. It's deeply disturbing stuff. A lot of action, a lot of, you know, tides turning. The heroes basically lose the war, and so they resort to more extreme tactical strikes, which is easy to do when you have an army of superheroes. So Star-Lord and Nova go off to assassinate Annihilus. Drax goes off to assassinate Thanos, actually succeeds, and then teams up with his daughter Moondragon to free the Silver Surfer and Galactus. Ronan and Super Scroll go off to liberate the Kree homeworld, and Ronan winds up overthrowing the folks who were in charge of the Kree and establishes himself as the ruler. And yeah, there's a lot of fallout from it, but ultimately Annihilus is defeated. We get a one-on-one -on -one fight between Nova and Annihilus where there is a little bit of, like, people coming in. The current Captain Marvel of this uh, generation, I think her name is Philavel, uh, comes in and, and lends an assist for a little bit. And then, yeah, that's the end of the, the war. This is not what I would say... I wouldn't call this, like, a deep comic. There's a lot of lore, there's a lot of moving pieces, and so I can imagine someone really easily getting lost. But I also kind of think it's a story where you can sit back and just kind of ride the action. And the action is pretty fun. The characters are interesting. They're not the big screen versions. And that, I think, would probably upset folks who are used to the more comedic Guardians of the Galaxy. This, there's a direct line between this story and the Drax that we get in the movies. Before this, Drax was this giant, kind of green-skinned, purple-caped bruiser and... Now he is this cunning strategist, this live, vicious, knife-wielding warrior. Take that, turn it comedic, and you wind up with Dave Bautista. So, I don't know. Annihilation is really influential, and I quite enjoyed revisiting it, 
even though there are pieces of the background and pieces of the context to that, I don't think I have anymore. What do y'all think of it? I enjoyed this. At first, I was like, ah, oh, this is an older comic, and it's showing its age, and there were little nitpicks and stuff. Maybe it was just because it was a war story, and that I don't know, I liked that for some reason. And the more I read it, the more I was, I cared about these characters, because at first it was like, well, I don't really know this, you know, barely mentioned half-character, and this isn't, you know, the the... It's some of the Guardians of the Galaxy, but not as Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, I vaguely knew, oh yeah, Drax is the one, like, destined or designed to kill um, Thanos, and maybe the only one who really can kill Thanos, and he does kill Thanos, you know, temporarily, because nobody's ever dead in comics. I don't know, I didn't expect to like it as much as I did, and, uh, you know, enjoyed it. And the covers are absolutely gorgeous. You know, art is, you know, it's consistent, it's good. Uh, not the best, but, like, it's well done. Maybe it's just, maybe not the best isn't right. Maybe, like, you know, not my favorite style. But, you know, there's a lot of detail they're packing in. And there's some really cool panels. Um, especially anything involving Galactus just looks fantastic. And, you know, what that the whole page that we get, Galactus has fallen, you know, is is great. You know, when, we, when he escapes, well, not escapes, but is, you know, set free in the end too looks really great so some high points there but i was surprised that i enjoyed it and you know it, the first issue felt longer than it was 31 pages as opposed to the normal you know what 22 that we get with you know more current comics it felt longer but in spite of all that i still like you know the more i read the more i was like yeah this is cool i, I enjoy this story yeah there was certainly like a bit of an adjustment period for me because we're going to drop to right into the end. Essentially, right? Like, the end of this war. Or, like, right in the middle of it. And there was a lot of stuff that I was like, I don't understand why everybody who's here is here necessarily, right? Especially since this isn't mm-hmm. the Guardians team that we're used to. And I don't think they're even referred to as, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy. They're not. In this book. I think they're all just referred to, yeah, by just by their individual titles. So it kind of did feel a little weird of, like, who's here and, you know, what what are the stakes necessarily? You know, and eventually that happens. And I thought that was kind of a great part where we know that Thanos is, you know, in love. In the comics, he's in love with death. And so he tries to kill a bunch so he can get freaky with death. The personification of death. <laughs> yep. And when he finds out that, that Annihilus is going to destroy everything, not just, like, some... But everything, I love how even Thanos is like, all right, listen, I'm evil, but listen, <laughs> I still need some people left to kill so I can get one my bay. And he does at the end. Richard Ryder is seemingly on his deathbed. He sees Thanos in death, just kind of hanging out, watching over him. And I was like, hey, good for you, my man, finally. <laughs> so, yeah, apart um, from that, apart from that initial adjustment period of like that first issue, I did enjoy it. I did think it being kind of a pretty straightforward war story kind of helped out a lot. Though I will I will never mm-hmm. stop being confused by by all this all the space names. The there's the Kree, the Babadoon, the Shi'ar, the different splinter <laughs> cells, the ones that fire. It's the Badoon. <laughs> the Babadoon is like a mashup of the Babadook and the Badoon. I don't <laughs> I think you just made a new alien race. Granted Sure, might as well be the Baba Dune because there's just so much junk flying around in the Marvel space. So. Yeah, there's like the two was it the, the two different 
groups of the Kree, right? I, I, I don't know. And then they keep calling him Ronan the Accuser, or, or Ronan used to be the Accuser, <laughs> or once known as the Accuser, yeah. So, I, I don't know. That I think I think past that initial period, yeah, I think it, it really does get a lot better. And it's it's kind of fun, yeah. Yeah. Actually, interesting thing, too, is I didn't... So, I kept kind of being annoyed a little bit. I always thought the whole Drax's obsession to kill Thanos is kind of a little annoying, right? Because, like, everything, you know, it's like, hey, buddy, what's... Hey, my name is Frank. I like building pirate ships and little glass bottles. What's yours? I'm Drax. I'm here to kill Thanos. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, hey, buddy, do you want to go get a burger? If a, if a burger's not going to help you kill Thanos, I don't want to. You know, right? Like, it's just so tunnel visioned. So I kind of did a little bit of research. I was like, because he keeps saying, this is what I was built for. This is what I... And so, like, I dug a little bit into at least this version's of Drax's history. And he used to be like a human. He used to be like a normal dude named Arthur Douglas. That's why his daughter has such a normal name, Heather. And... And uh, Thanos killed his family. And so, you know, he swore revenge. And then he was picked up by, I think, some spirit or some alien or something that turned him into Drax the Destroyer. And that is his sole purpose. That is, like, his his mission that he has been created for and programmed to do, essentially, is go kill Thanos. And I was like, oh, that makes more sense. Okay. He's not just obsessed. That's He doesn't have a choice to be anything but obsessed with with killing Thanos. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. So I've always liked the cosmic corner of the Marvel Universe, and it's different than the ground stuff, like the the street-level stuff, the New York stuff. Cosmic Marvel has always been very grand, very operatic. We've seen that with Infinity Gauntlet. We've seen that with, like, the origin of Adam Warlock, where you have the high evolutionary who basically recreates the Garden of Eden story, right? And I've always liked, I've always been drawn to that element of it. And one big frustration that I have with the movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is that they take Guardians and they turn it into another sort of quippy, sarcastic superhero story. It's no longer... The spacefaring stuff is no longer quite the same level of operatic and and dramatic as it used to be. Luckily, the movies are really good. So, like, that's not a criticism of the movies necessarily, but rather the way that the comics tend to kind of draw on the movies. But yeah, prior to Annihilation, the Guardians of the Galaxy were the 31st century team that we read that one story of where they went back to Earth and met the gang that was modeled after the Punishers. That was the Guardians of the Galaxy. The, The version of the Guardians of the Galaxy that we know came to be after this series. So this sets up a lot of, like I said, what Marvel would do with cosmic stuff in the future. But it still has that same sense of grand scale and spectacle that makes me, like, I'm really drawn to this. This came out at the same time as Civil War. And at the time that these stories came out, I kind of liked them both. I liked Civil War a little bit better because it was easier for me to understand. With the passage of time, Annihilation has risen in my steam. Not quite to the degree that Civil War has fallen, but... I'm quite fond of this. I think it doesn't go super high on our list once we get to that point, simply because I don't think this book has anything to say. It's just a wild ride. And I do like my comics to say stuff. But, I mean, it's got solid art. It's got interesting characters that are fun to read, that are... I mean, this isn't a joyless book. It's not a humorless book. But it is grim at moments. 
And yeah, get over that initial hurdle and it's a lot of fun. And this does make me want to go back and read the other contributing series because I do not remember what happened in the Super Scrolls story at all. This, I feel like those other books are truly like a good prologue or supplemental because we still get a good story here. I'm just not as familiar with these characters at this time to, to where I'm like, now who's that again? Okay. And then they do something in this story and it's not just all references to things happening off screen. Like we got kind of in civil war where all the good stuff was in those side issues. I think we get a good story here, a good through line, you know, the, the, the action is pretty is paced well. And so I don't feel like I'm missing out. I feel more intrigued, you know, kind of like like you were saying, Stephen, I want to go back and read those other ones because this, you know, does a good job. And they had some of the same artists involved. And Keith Giffen, the uh, the author here, the writer, did the, he did one of them. I think he did Silver Surfer. Yeah, I, I want to read more. And he wrote for the uh, Real Ghostbusters cartoon show that I watched as a little kid, so... You know, bonus. I was, I was looking up, I was like, I haven't read any of his other stuff. It's mostly DC, but also the real Ghostbusters TV show. I forgot that part of the reason that Annihilus is so powerful in this story is that he has the quantum bands. Yes, and that is one of the prologue things that he, he kills Quasar and takes him. Yeah, Quasar's a character I know nothing about. I was very glad that Captain Marvel had this moment where she attacked Annihilus and stole the quantum bands from him. Because, boy, the ladies do not have much to do in this book, and it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Like, not in, a, not in the, like, let's cancel Keith Giffen sense, but just, like, Gamora is in this. She's called the most dangerous woman alive. She just mostly walks around with her butt facing towards mm-hmm. the camera. Moondragon is in this, and she is immediately overcome by Thanos and kind of taken captive by him. Her girlfriend, look, quick aside, shout out for having a not super toxic portrayal of a lesbian relationship in the mid-2000s. <laughs> it actually seems pretty cool at this point. Captain Marvel does not do hardly anything. She gets her butt handed to her by Thanos and then she is sidelined for almost the rest of the story until that moment at the end. And then I don't know what the deal is with that weird little fairy that's following Thanos around. I th- so I initially thought that was Wasp. So that added Me to my too. confusion. I was like, what is Wasp doing there in a Slave Leia costume on Thanos' shoulder? Right, because doesn't the Wasp, isn't the Wasp in a relationship with Doom at some point? I don't know. See, I was mixing that up with this because I was like, is that the Wasp and Thanos? What the heck? No, so so that's a character called Screet. And I, I had to look it up because I had no idea. I've never seen that character. even heard mention of the, of the name. So that character is from, I guess, like a storyline. And she, when the Earth was created, not the Earth, I guess, like when the universe was created, there was a race of creatures like her who were created. They were the first sentient race, essentially. And I forgot who, but they were eliminated by, by something, by like a great purge. And she's like the last of their kind. But she is like a, I think they call her like a chaos creature or something like that. And so I think the Nova Corps, when the, the Nova Corps was still a thing, uh, considered her like a pretty high threat. Like they, like almost on Thanos' level. And when she was rescued or she was like in a prison, she was imprisoned or something. And she was released from it. Thanos was there and she was like, oh, 
Thanos seems interesting. So then she just decided to hang out with Thanos like a pet. I've actually read some of that Thanos series because my brother was collecting those comics. And Nerd. I borrowed his comics. The comics, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my brother's comics. The important thing to note here is that I was in my mid-twenties at this point. Yeah. Uber nerd. I met your brother, but maybe that works too. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't remember like much about it. What you said gels with my memory, but even then it's like, so? So what? What what happened? What's the point? But anyway, Thanos' role in this story is interesting. I think he is a really compelling big bad, but you can only do the Thanos story a couple of times. And heck, I think Infinity Gauntlet might be the only time that it's really good. After that, you have to kind of figure out other ways to handle the character to make sure that he remains compelling. And turning him into Lackey is not a bad way to do it. Yeah, I think what we get here is really interesting. I like that when... Oh, what was her name? Like, Moon God, was it? Moon Dragon. Moon Dragon. Moon Dragon. Yeah. I like that when Moon Dragon is talking to him and she's kind of asking him about why he's a lackey or whatever and they get... They get into that room, right, where they kind of get to talk in private. And she asks him, like, what's your, like, what's the thing, right? And he just kind of goes, like, well, I'm kind of tired of being the bad guy. And, you know, maybe it's, like, losing and it's just a cycle. So I just decided to, you know, take a break and let somebody else do the bad guy thing. Because I'm bored and curious. So let's just see how this plays out. And then we find out that Annihilus is going to destroy everything. And he's like, okay, never mind. I would like to have... Something to kill when this is over. Yeah, he's like, I, you know, I'm down with killing scores of people as much as the next guy, but like, you gotta leave someone alive, you know? So it was like a very fine line. I did find that when, you know, we see Thanos is working for Annihilus, it's like, okay, but he's going to betray him, right? Like, so how is that going to happen? There was no surprise. There was no surprise to it. I liked how it was done, but there was no, there was no twist. You know, it was like, it wasn't a question of if, but when and how. So, but I liked it. The twist was actually kind of compelling, though, because there, there was a twist. And the twist was Thanos betrays Annihilus. And then Drax kills him before he can actually do anything about it. Yeah, that that uh, Drax actually getting to destroy something was was uh, very rewarding. I did not see that coming. I thought he'd be like huh, missed because you know he's he's got knives, <laughs> and Thanos is Thanos. I do wish we could have gotten to see a little bit more of Drax when he's fighting the bugs by himself, where he gets left behind on the planet, like on purpose, right? Like he like lets himself get behind so everybody else can escape. I wish we would have seen just a little bit more of that because we get that really cool shot of like his back, right? As he's like jumping into the giant pile of enemies. I feel like that was referenced a couple times in movies visually, but... I think so. I feel like that's a pretty iconic image of Drax. Is like from the yeah. back about to stab a thing with his two... Like I feel like at this point that is... That is Comes from here. We don't get that without the story. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're, I mean, you're fine. I mean, that makes sense. I'm excited about that. Because it's yeah, cool. <laughs> it is cool. It's good. It's for a character who, up until 2013, I guess, was not that popular. It's kind of interesting to see that he kind of had an iconic pose already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This writer is also the creative co-creator of Rocket Raccoon. But Rocket Raccoon, not featured in this cosmic Oh my book. gosh, how did we not mention that? Well, he wasn't in here, so... Yeah. <laughs> He's not... <laughs> that's That's probably the reason. 
I like this book. What else What else do we want to say about it? It was pretty good. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. Here's the question, though. Where does it rank? Ho-ho. Oh, let's spike that setup. Okay. <laughs> so, currently on our list, we have... We have 239 stories. Very top of the list is Ms. Marvel, No Normal. Fantastic story. We're quite fond of it. Very bottom of the list is The Evil That Men Do... Spider-Man story that is, at its heart, no good. <laughs> Ugh. So these stories go somewhere in the middle. Let's start with the Extreme X-Men. Where do we think that goes? I'm weighing my interest in universe-hopping stories, my love of the X-Men, my, uh, how impressed I was with the art, with just how badly written Dazzler was. Uh, it's it's tricky. <laughs> so we have Greg Pak actually in our top... I forgot Planet Hulk. Planet Hulk is in our top ten. Still. Um, it is... Planet Hulk is really good. It's number eight. And then um, we have our Thirst Killies story uh, near the bottom. It is uh, 179 at the moment. Not as close to the bottom. Of course, we have padded this list out with some real garbage since we read that story. <laughs> so, I don't. I, this goes somewhere in between. I would say, I don't know, good, not great. Like, closer to the top than the bottom. But I'm trying to find, like, a good middle point or a, a, kind of a benchmark book that I'm like, okay, not not it's not better than this one. But Where is that Exiles book you mentioned? It? It's low. That Exiles book is at, like, one. 80 something okay never mind 186 yeah so i'll say it's compare it's comparable to that in a sense but i don't think it's that yeah it is very comparable to that but i agree that i don't think that that's the uh you know i would put this gosh I, wait what what were the numbers of the stuff that you said john what uh, i said um greg park is in our top 10 at number eight and 179 so are we looking for the mathematical midpoint, or no? I just wanted—I just wanted to make sure I wasn't going lower than that, because um, I was going to say, in terms of a book that doesn't that delivers but doesn't quite deliver, I was going to put this right above. Now this is pod racing, which is one twenty-eight. <laughs> that is not what that book was called. <laughs> no, but what else? What else are we going to call it? <laughs> I'm going to call it that forever. One twenty-eight. So that's higher than I would go, honestly. I'm not sure that I'm going to win this I don't think you're gonna lose. particular discussion. But like, I do think that this is closer to Love and War than it is to, I don't know, anything else above it. Like, I will say that I would probably put it above the Kree Scroll War, which is at 157. Simply because I don't remember what happened in the Kree Scroll War. That was not as big a deal as I thought it was going to well, be. Well, the Kree and the Scroll fought each other, but I don't remember that actually being like... It wasn't as big of a... It wasn't a war comic like like this one was. I think wasn't... what What is that group that Cyclops' brother hangs out with? Isn't he in there? Isn't that group in there? Whose brother hangs out with it? Uh, no, because Cyclops' brother wasn't the Oh, thing. the Star Jammers. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's his dad. That's his and dad. That's, that's his dad. And also, no, because that wasn't... Well, no, the, the Star Jammers would have been a thing. I do not remember that story, like, at all. I think that where I start to really question whether I want to go any higher or any lower is um, around the time that we get to and men shall call him Warlock and Winter Soldier Winter Kills. Yeah. 
because I think that Winter Soldier story is better. And I want to give the edge to the the Warlock story, but I that's because Warlock is one of my pet characters. That's what I was thinking because I saw Executioner's Song and that good, bad, whatever, like that was one of my early comics that I read as a kid that like stuck with me like oh these guys are so cool now I go back and I'm like this is all shoulder pads and like extra cargo pockets <laughs> and nonsense but it was my first exposure to some of these characters and it still is you know there's a fondness there and I was gonna put this now that we're talking in this area I was gonna <laughs> put this below Big Thunder Mountain Railroad because <laughs> Big Thunder Mountain Railroad was fun not that this isn't fun. yeah but I just I just I, I didn't like that as much as I liked this one even with the stuff that kind of bothered me, it's still an X-Men book. It is still an X-Men there's book. No, there's no X-Men in Frontierland. Because, well, I mean, this book says otherwise. But I just think that with the material that we have here, I am kind of struggling to put it up much higher than what you guys are looking at. So I would agree with whatever you guys agree with. But I think this is one of those books that maybe, this is going off 10-year-old memories, but this is a book that I think would benefit from us reading the rest of the run, but I don't know that it's necessarily worth I think what we got here is mm. sufficient. It's it has been a decade since I read this book. Boy do I feel old sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, every time I'm not thinking about it, a new anniversary of a movie that I love sneaks up on me. Like I think this year is thirty <laughs> years for Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. So that's rough. They're planning the 10-year anniversary for the Final Fantasy MMO that I play. And I oh, it's hard for me to believe that that game has been out for 10 years. And I have been playing it for 7 of those 10. <laughs> so, 151? That's, that's my vote is 151. I'm fine with putting it under Warlock. Let's do 151. I'm totally fine with 151. You know, Aldo, I haven't realized that you wield a lot of power as the one who's physically making the list. Like you could just be like, we could wake up tomorrow and it's like, Oh my, <laughs> this is, these are all, all those favorites. What happened to our old top 10? I've thought about it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a coup planned in, on, you know, in pencil. Uh, so yeah, let's annihilation. Tricky because I liked it better than the X-Men story, but not more than a lot of our top stories. So it goes higher, but not that much higher. I think it's a really good upper-middle range. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, just completely randomly, looking at 97, Modox 11. This is better than Modox 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I like the old Secret Wars better. Is it better than Mary Chain and Black Cat? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would also say it's better than Secret Wars. Well, that Secret Wars, yeah. Honestly. That Secret Wars. No, the the Jonathan Hickman Secret Wars is at number three on our list, and I'm not sure it isn't too low. Oh, no, the number two is the first Spider-Man story, so never mind. <laughs> that comic's really good. Is it better than Mary Jane and Black Cat? Honestly, I would say yes. I like it better than that Drax story that was written by CM Punk. <laughs> I mean, that's not a terribly high bar. Why is that above Thor's Battle World? Why is that above Thor's Battle World? That's a Good question. Did we just leave it alone? I. Th it might be one of those things. I think we liked it. I think we were surprised <laughs> at the quality of it. I think we were surprised by it too. 
Jeez. Like, here's the thing. I don't actually think Annihilation is all that good, but I keep going up on, like, I like this better than that United States of Captain America. I like this better than The Final Host. I like this better than Future Imperfect. Deadly Genesis is where I start to go, okay, hold on. You're being, you're, you're getting carried away. Deadly Genesis is arguably more influential. Pretty iconic. Yeah. I almost would rather read this than Deadly Genesis, but I do think I liked that Civil War II Kingpin story better. Like, that's my hard ceiling, but that's a lot higher than I think you do. You know, if we're talking about a villain that we see portrayed the same all the time and seeing a different personification of them, or at least see them do something a little bit different, I think that Kingpin story actually does that. Better than than Annihilation? That's a good comparison. I don't even think that's controversial. (laughs) Man, that was such a good comic though that kingpin yeah surprising right (sighs) so i think that kingpin story is definitely the ceiling do we want to go any lower than that i cannot remember gwen stacy's spider woman and i feel like that's from the edge of spider verse that's like her intro comic right 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 right, right. then yeah yeah. i would put this above i would put this above mary jane and black cat and i'm sorry aldo no that's fine i just said that as a joke oh (laughs) (laughs) We weren't close enough to Mary Jane Love Spider-Man, so I, I had to pick something. Mm. See, my problem here, though, is also kind of on that same vein. I really liked Future Imperfect with, like, the Hulk. Granted, there's some stuff in there that I know made some of us feel a little uncomfortable, but I liked Future Imperfect quite a bit, so I, I don't know. I don't know Conceptually, if I sure. Say. Yeah. But, you know... I think Future Imperfect just let me down because I really didn't care for the Hulk getting sexually assaulted. Right, which is fair. But there were other there were there were other aspects of it that were really good. So I think it's respectable to say that Future Imperfect is better than this. Mm. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess we'll leave the deciding vote on that to to John. Oh, such heady. We're trying our hardest to drag you <laughs> up, John. Come on, bud. I believe in you. What's the number of Future Imperfect? Future Imperfect is number 80. I'm trying to, like... It's tough because I did not like United States of Captain America, I think, as much as you guys did. Eh. No, I still I still think the highest I can... I'm, like, like looking at this seriously. I think the highest I can go is 95. All right, never mind. It's back to being Steven. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'd love to be the decider, but I... Eh. Yeah, I think, Aldo, you're the one who's who's the moderate in this argument. You know, I feel like six months from now, I'm not going to remember a whole lot that happens in this book. And I still remember what happened in Future Imperfect. Let's put it below Future Imperfect. I guess I can cede two slots <laughs> on my preferred placement. And if I concede two, John concede 20. Yeah, you win some, you lose more. Is one of those two slots a Dan? <laughs> No, Len Wein and Peter David. I think we're good. Um, so anyway, <laughs> what a silly joke. Next time. I just want to be acknowledged. <laughs> we're going to do something a little different next time. We, every now and again, will pick, each of us will pick a single issue story to read and we'll kind of discuss those. We started talking about doing that and then we, John, you pointed out that there are some series that are made up of single issues that are standalone stories, but they're kind of thematically tied. Mm-hmm. And Aldo found a Star Wars version of that. The John, the one that you mentioned, was X-Men, and we absolutely have to revisit it, but also we just read the X-Men. But Aldo found a Star Wars one, and so we're going to do this uh, recent, relatively recent Star Wars 
event called The Age of the Rebellion, and it's a series of one-shots. There are eight issues. To keep this somewhat under control, we're only going to read four. Again, they're all one-shots, so these should be four distinct standalone stories that I think we'll kind of discuss in a comparative literature sort of way, and I think it'll be pretty fun. And we're basic. We're going to go with the main characters of the Star Wars <laughs> franchise. There's a story for Han, a story for Luke, a story for Leia, and a story for Vader. And that's what we're going to read, and that's what we're going to discuss next time on our episode that will go up, I believe, on Memorial Day. So you can listen to it while you're barbecuing your vegan hot dogs or whatever it is people do to celebrate the, the holiday. Interesting, love. Uh, they did a bunch of those Age of, like, anthology series. There's the Age of Rebellion, which is, like, the original trilogy stuff. There's Age of Republic, which is the prequel stuff. And so they do that for a lot of the characters. So, like, Anakin, Darth Maul, General Grievous. And then they also did Age of Resistance, which is for a lot of the new trilogy characters. So, like, Finn, Rose Tico, and Poe Dameron, and General Hux, even. Does that story explain why General Hux turned a traitor in Rise of Skywalker? Because the movie didn't do a very good job. movie didn't do a very good job of much except for appeasing the noisiest, squeakiest wheel in fandom. Yeah, just kind of demonstrating that to this day, J.J. Abrams does not know how to end anything. Nope. This is the... Okay. <laughs> My source here is Patrick Willems. So, might not be the most accurate. Stephen frequently shares the gospel of Patrick Willems. Ah, uh, Patrick H. Willems. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> the good reverend Patrick H. Williams. You will respect his name. <laughs> Back when it was announced that Abrams was going to take over episode 9 from Trevorrow, Patrick Williams did a video where he explored J.J. Abrams' series and mentioned that the only series that Abrams started and then finished was Felicity. Nothing else that Abrams started did he actually stick around to do the final installments of. So, yeah, yeah, I think Abrams has, to this day, only done two endings. And yeah, it, it turns out Abrams' strengths are casting and, I think, pacing. And I think he's good at cinematography and like has an yeah. eye for that sort of thing. But I don't think story is his strong suit. Not, not, landing, not landing the plane, because... Uh... He didn't finish. Yeah, he didn't. Well, that's why the plane crashes at the beginning of the There Lost. you go. There you go. It didn't know how it was going to land because he didn't stick. Yeah, didn't stick around for Lost. Didn't stick around for um, Star Wars, right? And he definitely didn't stick around for the third act of Super 8, which is a real shame because the first was just. Mm, mwah, love it. But, but I mean, also that that book that we read that was written by him and his son, you know, didn't necessarily stick the landing. Oh either. my gosh. Cadaverous. I forgot about that. I forgot that was Abrams. We read a lot of comics. We have almost 250 books. Not enough. Woo. Still like 0.03% of the Mar of the Marvel library. This yeah, this isn't even a survey course of comics. This is nothing. Like it's it's wild. I think we got a pretty decent greatest hits though. That's not bad. Yeah. The fact that nowadays we talk about our top twenty, like also I think goes to prove that there's a there's a lot of good stuff yeah. out there. There's a lot of good stuff we haven't even read yet. Also true. We're going to keep reading very bad Spider-Man books because that is oddly cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> it's not enough for Peter Parker's life to suck. The book has to also. 